Alrighty, so we'll pick up today. We're um, on lesson four, I think. Uh, last week we talked about Nero. We talked about uh, the deaths of Peter and Paul and how um, Nero was a, a key. Uh, Nero was a key. Um, uh, kind of a key figure in church history in a negative way. He killed a lot of Christians. He was the first emperor to officially, uh, from an imperial position, persecute Christians. Um, and he was really wicked. He did a lot of bad stuff. So um, today we're going to, so last week we were kind of in Rome. We really focused on Rome. We're still in the time of Nero today. We're going to actually jump back and forth a little bit between Rome and Judea and maybe even a little bit of other, other parts of the Roman Empire. But we're going to continue with the story of Nero and the story of uh, Jerusalem. We talked about what was going on there uh, two lessons previous when we talked about uh, the death, the martyrdom of the Apostle James. So um, we'll go down that road today. I have uh, updated bibliographies, so it's basically the same as last week. But now there's, I think there's maybe one more book that's on there, so if you want to grab it, you can. It'll probably be updated yet again next week and as we go along. But um, if you didn't get one last week, go ahead and grab one. There's a pile of sheets right there. Um, also, before we get too far along, I still want to keep asking you this question, and that is, what kind of questions have you guys uh, maybe run across, have run across your mind since we've started this class? Questions about the church history. Um, I do remember your questions. I'm writing them down. Um, I remember uh, James asked a question about Constantine. Tina asked about church life in the very early stages of, of church history. So uh, if you have a question, I probably won't answer it today, especially if it's not related directly to this lesson. But I will write it, write it down, and I'll make sure I study that and prepare it in, in the future. It provides it's relevant to this era of history. So any questions you guys have right now? about anything related to church history. I, I do have one question. I mean, I don't know how to phrase it, but um, and it, it's more of a, a eschatology, possibly type of uh, question. So I'll try my best. Um, how for those I mean, that, uh, that believe that we're in the thousand-year reign of Jesus, I think of millennial. Um, and how do they say, because I think they say something like Nero, who, who murdered many Christians in 70 AD, or, or wherever the time was, um, how, how, how do they see that? How do they, um, again, I'm sorry, I don't know how to phrase it. How do they confuse that with the, in the millennial kingdom now? Yeah, I think it's because they, you know, that all of the description of the tribulation and the description of the events of Revelation, they're saying that's like, that, that was Roman, the destruction of. The temple in 70 AD, and uh, therefore, you know, when it's talking about that kingdom, along with that judgment, 
Oh, actually, I think mean, it could be the post money. I don't know. I forgot. Yeah. Yeah. So that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think about credit risk. Yeah, I think it's confusing. It's a good question. Um, I, I mean, not, that was just a question, general question to have. I don't subscribe to that thought. I don't subscribe to that thought. But, um, I heard it, yeah. and I, a lot of Christians uh, think that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think it's just an omnibus thing about Nero's, or I think it's more post-millennial to believe that about Nero. It diverges a lot of different okay. ways, um, and just even in looking at church history. It's a very good question, and we're going to go down that road in the future for sure. Uh, John, who's coming in here in a minute, actually asked a very similar question after the, after the class last week about the uh, pre-millennial, post-millennial. He basically asked, like, well, what did they believe back then? Okay. And uh, we're going to get into that just a tiny bit today, because what we're dealing with today is closely related. Uh, as far as the church's view of history goes. So we will get into that. A very good question. And we're going to get into it a lot more, I think, in, in future classes. Good. Anybody else? Any other questions? Okay. All right. So let's go ahead and get started. So as I said, we were dealing with Nero last time. We're still dealing with Nero today. But we're jumping, first of all, back over to Jerusalem, uh, Judea. The, Jew, the Jewish revolt is what we're going to look at to start. So if you remember, when Paul went to Rome, uh, it was Festus who was governor. Well, Festus died shortly after Paul left, um, and then they had to send a new governor. So Nero sent this guy named Albinus, um, and then Albinus, he was a really bad emperor, or sorry, really bad governor, um, pretty corrupt. He was later replaced by yet another guy named Floris. And Floris was even worse. Floris was corrupt, greedy, and cruel. So um, uh, that, we're, according to the, uh, the, the historian Josephus, was one of the biggest instigators, one of the biggest things that really caused the Jewish revolt that broke out in 66 AD. 66 AD, the Jews say, we've had enough. Uh, of course, in reality, there were a lot of Jews who always wanted independence from the Romans, uh, but they were a faction. It wasn't necessarily, you know, the whole uh, Jewish people were like, let's be independent. It wasn't like they were all thinking that way. But with a guy like Florus and the cruelty, the, the way that he abused the, the Jews in Jerusalem, um, that was the fuel that those kinds of factions needed to get the rest of the Jewish people to say, all right, that's it, we've had it. So in 66 AD, the Jews revolt. Um, they, they defeat a bunch of uh, Roman forces in the field and in certain cities. Uh, they, they enjoy a lot of success right up front. So Nero says, okay, that's it. I need a really powerful general. Um, and I'm going to send a really powerful general with some really powerful forces down there to put down this rebellion. So he chooses a guy named Vespasian, very famous, very reputed Roman general, somewhat elderly Roman general at that time. Just a real quick note as well. I know I dropped a lot of names while we go through this history. Um, that can be confusing, but it kind of helps the narrative flow, you know what I mean? I will try to emphasize the names that you should really remember. So you don't have to try to remember all these names necessarily. Of course, you remember Nero. Vespasian would be another one of those names you probably want to maybe jot a note of. That's, that's an important one. So Vespasian goes down to Judea with his armies um, to suppress the rebellion. Okay, that's in late 60s AD. Back in Rome, of course, Nero was, uh, we knew he was uh, being cruel to the Christians. He was also being really odious 
and unpleasant to all the Romans, Romans in general. So Roman is, or Nero is getting very, very unpopular in Rome. Uh, a bunch of things are starting to go wrong for him as a result of this. We know there were at least two conspiracies against his life, uh, I think in the nobility, and he quashed them. Uh, in true Neronian fashion, he probably overdid it a bit, probably killed a lot of people who weren't even necessarily part of the plots, but nonetheless, he quashed those conspiracies. And then a bigger rebellion, a couple of few bigger rebellions kicked off against him, which he wasn't really able to control. And those are rebellions of his armies out of the provinces. So first, the armies in, uh, out in modern-day France, Gaul, uh, they rebelled. And then shortly after that, you had a, another powerful general named Galba uh, down in Spain uh, who also rebelled. So these guys are rebelling against Nero. And finally, Nero's getting to the point. He's not long for this world. He's getting to the point where um, he can't do anything about it. He's without power. The Roman Senate and the people of Rome despise him. They um, aren't offering him any assistance as he's you know, trying to recruit and trying to put up some kind of resistance um, against these rebellions. And actually, finally, uh, Nero's own servants abandoned him. His own Praetorian Guard, the bodyguard that's supposed to protect the emperor, they desert him. So he doesn't even have personal protection on his life. So he flees, doesn't get far. The Roman Senate declares Nero a public enemy and calls for his execution. What Nero uh, hears um, when he's informed about what the Senate has ruled against him is his execution is going to be just about as cruel and uh, bar barbarous as many of the executions that he inflicted on other people. So finally, abandoned by almost everybody, only with a couple most loyal servants left to him, Nero, with, with the, the soldiers coming to arrest him, literally coming down the road to get him, at the place he is outside of Rome at this time, Nero, with the help of his last servant, cuts his own throat, kills himself, and dies. And so ends Nero. Now, after Nero, uh, kind of becomes a free-for-all, a little bit of a free-for-all at Rome. At least that's certainly what it looks like in hindsight. Galba, of course, uh, the general over here in Spain who rebelled, he gets declared the next emperor. So Galba comes and he sets up his, uh, he sets up himself. He's he's now on the throne. He's not a really good ruler either, actually. He's a little bit cruel to his enemies. He's uh, not so fair to the troops that he relies on. That wasn't very smart. Galba lasts seven months, and after seven months, finally the the soldiers are uh, discontent with his leadership, and led by a guy named Otho. He is assassinated, and then Otho takes his place. So now you got another, you've got two emperors right, right in the row. Otho, Otho comes to the throne, um, and then shortly after Otho comes to the throne, there's this other guy named Vitellius, another Roman general, who said, well, heck, I can be, I can be emperor then. And so he rebels. He leads his armies in rebellion against Otho. Otho commits suicide after about three months as emperor. And so Vitellius comes to Rome, and... Uh, he is now the emperor. Okay? Now back to Judea. We go back to Judea, and uh, Vespasian is still in Judea. And um, at this point, Vespasian is beginning to think, well, you know what? I'm, I'm pretty reputed. I've got, I'm pretty powerful. I think I can be emperor. So at this point, by the time we get to Vitellus being the emperor of Rome, 
Vespasian decides to take on the uh, take on the title. His soldiers hail him as emperor while he's still in Judea, and he sets out to um, basically enforce that claim. Uh, and what, at this point, we're getting down to about 69 AD, and uh, the war in Judea is going pretty well for Vespasian. He's defeating most of the Jewish forces. He's capturing the, the Jewish cities. The, one of the last and obviously the biggest prize stronghold is the, the city of Jerusalem. So Vespasian uh, sets out to enforce his claim on being emperor, and he leads his son Titus. You probably recognize that name. He leads his son Titus to go on to Jerusalem, besiege it, and, and finish the job. Now, so you might be asking, where is the Jerusalem church in, in all of this while all this is going on? Uh, so just as a little bit of a parenthesis, what uh, Eusebius tells us is that um, as the Jews were revolting, at some time before the siege, uh, the church in Jerusalem received a prophecy that warned them, warned the Christians to flee the city. So we're, we're told, it's reported to us, that the Christians in Jerusalem got up and got out. And by that, because of that, they were actually spared many of the horrors that were soon to take place there. So Josephus um, comes to Jerusalem in, at about the time of the Passover in 70 AD, and he lays siege to the city, which is kind of the worst situation, if you can imagine it. At the Passover, millions of Jews all came to Jerusalem as pilgrims to you know, celebrate the Passover. So now... Titus comes in and he basically bottles them all up in there. So it's an overpopulated city uh, with Jews from all over the empire there. Uh, he lays siege to it, and what ensues is includes every war you can possibly imagine to siege warfare back in that time of history. Um, the Jews do a few things. They come out of the, of the, of the city at times, attack and kill a bunch of Roman soldiers. Um, they have their little successes here and there, but ultimately the siege gets worse and worse and worse, and the uh, situation just gets terrible for those who are living there, both combatants and non-combatants. Uh, Josephus, again, tells us some of the horrors that took place there. It was violence between all parties. It wasn't just violence between Jew and Roman. There were, remember, various Jewish factions that were all crowded in the city together. There was violence between them. Um, some of the groups would, you know, pillage the other groups, they, especially as the famine set in and people started to starve, they started to fight for food. Um, at one point, the famine got so severe that even there's even reports of cannibalism where, where people, at least one woman, was eating a grown child. And probably just wasn't, wasn't just one instance. Many of the Jews in this sort of situation tried to escape. So they, you know, you have the German army surrounding the, the city. And um, some of the Jews try to break out of there. A lot of them get caught. I think most of them get caught according to Josephus' account. And as they get caught, they're tortured, killed, and crucified. And you can imagine the picture. All the Jews that are in Jerusalem are looking out across the walls, and all the hills around Jerusalem are just filling up with crosses of Jews being crucified. Uh, it was truly, truly a terrible, terrible time. Uh, finally, uh, the... The inevitable happened uh, after several months of this siege. Um, the final walls were broken. Uh, the, the, the Romans got into the city. Um, the, the final end was just catastrophe. Probably hundreds of thousands, definitely at least tens of thousands of Jews massacred. Many others uh, enslaved. And of course, 
as many of you know, the, the temple in Jerusalem, the, the, the uh, symbol of the Jewish faith, uh, caught on fire and was, for all intents and purposes, completely destroyed. So that is 70 AD in a very quick nutshell. At the end of 70 AD, you have two things. You have a new dynasty, the, the dynasty set up by Vespasian, the Flavians, and the temple gone, um, absolute disaster for the nation of the Jews. What do we take from all this? Any questions up at this point? Okay, so this uh, lesson, actually, as I was preparing it, was pretty, pretty challenging. <laughs> Trying to think, what's the uh, what's the point of all of this? And and I didn't want to skip the siege of Jerusalem. The siege of Jerusalem, I feel, is especially as you start looking at things that happen in the church and the theology of the church down the road, it's very very significant. Uh, but I think a lot of a lot of um, maybe some of the podcasts and. Uh, some books that I've encountered so far about Christian history, the, the church's history, uh, they do tend to kind of just skip by this. And I can understand why, because it's kind of hard to really know all of what was going on with the church at that time. Um, it's easier to kind of look at what people say about it afterwards, necessarily, than at, at the event of its own, at, during its own time. So it was a little bit challenging. But I think uh, kind of reading about what, was, uh, what happened at that time, I think this is one of the things that hit me, and it, it really came to me when I read one of the things that Josephus wrote about. So first of all, a few things about Josephus. His name, at least his Latin name is Flavius Josephus. He was a Jew, uh, and first, the, at the beginning of this Jewish revolt, he was on the side of the revolutionaries. He was fighting the Romans. Uh, he was actually, I think he came from nobility, and uh, he was a military leader, uh, fought against the Romans in the field. Um, Eventually, when Vespasian came down, he was cornered and forced to surrender to Vespasian. So he did. He went to Vespasian, begged for mercy. Vespasian showed them mercy. And uh, the Romans then used Josephus as a sort of emissary to try to persuade remaining rebels to capitulate it. It wasn't super successful, but he was kind of an emissary at the siege of Jerusalem. And he, according to his reports, encouraging the Jews in Jerusalem to surrender. And then after the war, Josephus, of course, most famously, he went on to write a history of the war. And in that history, there's a few things that come out. He's obviously very pro-Roman and pro-Flavian. He's really, you know, a big supporter of Vespasian and Titus. But as he writes about them, he left us some interesting insights about some of the things that were kind of driving the actions of the people during this time. So I'm going to read a little, really quick excerpt. And this excerpt is referred to by some other historians. Uh, Eusebius refers to this, and then Suetonius, uh, who we talked about last week, another historian, also refers to this quote. It's pretty significant, um, uh, pretty significant quote here. This is in his uh, book called The Wars of the Jews. Josephus says this, what did most elevate them in undertaking this war? It's talking about the Jews, why the Jews, you know, revolted. What did most elevate them in undertaking this war was an ambiguous oracle that was also found in their sacred writings, that's probably the Old Testament, how about that time, one from their country should become governor of the habitable earth. The Jews took this prediction to belong to themselves in particular, and many of the wise men were thereby deceived in their determination. Now this oracle, 
certainly denoted the government of Vespasian, who was appointed emperor of Judea. One of the things that we've been talking about is, uh, in the course of this class, is how the world is constantly looking for relevance and meaning. And as they're looking for that relevance, they're, they're generally looking in all the wrong places. The church is the one uh, institution, the one human institution, that enjoys eternal relevance and meaning because that's what God has given us. He's given us an eternal uh, destiny, an eternal hope, and, and new life in, a, in, in his presence, in life after death. But the world is, is constantly looking for that meaning, and they're not finding it. Solomon, one of the few wise men, of the ancient times comes out and says, you, you know, I've looked my whole life and I haven't found meaning. Where do they look? Well, one of the places that the world looks is uh, for leaders. Um, we can see that the Jews at this time were still looking for a Messiah. They had rejected the real Messiah. And they were looking for a leader who would um, give them some lasting eternal meaning. And they were misguided by it. And Josephus calls them out on that error. And yeah, what's so ironic about Josephus calling them out on that error is that he commits an equal mistake when he presumes that this Old Testament prophecy about a ruler of the world is really about Vespasian. Uh, Vespasian, the reality is, of course, uh, as the world looks to these le leaders, in some of these cases, the, the leaders and the hopes and the movements, the causes that, that the world is looking to, is going to be swiftly proven false. Um, in a very short time, it will fail. It could be like a... Uh, um, Jim Jones, if you've heard of that, or the Taiping Rebellion in China, where uh, it doesn't last that long. After a very short time, it, it's, uh, it comes to complete failure. In other cases, the, the failure, the futility of, of the cause that, that, that the world signs on to could be um, the result. It, it could be proven false after only a slow and steady process of time. Uh, the Flavian dynasty didn't last forever. Eventually, they came to an end. In fact, eventually, they became... Uh, uh, in a shorter time, they became persecutors of the church. I really liked what, what Eusebius actually wrote uh, who, when he quoted, when he referred to this quote by Josephus. So I'll just read from Eusebius um, real quick here. He's talking about Josephus. He said, the same writer tells an even more remarkable story in which he claims that an oracle was found in their sacred writings predicting that a man from their land would at that time rule the whole world. And he says this was Vespasian. But you see this goes on and he says, but Vespasian did not reign over the whole world, only that part under Roman control. It would more justifiably be applied to Christ, to whom the Father had said, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. That's Psalm 2. And it was by, the Eusebius goes on to say, it was by his holy apostles at that very time that their voice went through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. So Eusebius speaking well for the church, rightly identifies the Old Testament prophecy to be referring to Christ, referring to the gospel. And he recognizes that this is, that this is, uh, while the world is looking at all the wrong places and misinterpreting scripture in their search for relevance, uh, the real hope that we have has come and the gospel is being preached. Let's go real quick, turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 21. <laughs> What's a lesson for us as Christians? Um, 
We know that the, the church has is the only institution with eternal, lasting, and relevance. I think what this stories and, and lessons from history like this teach us is that the, the church's relevance, um, among other things, is in knowing and following the true king. You have in events like these in 70 AD, you have people following false kings, people following false Christ. Eusebius aptly points out that, that Christ's kingdom began to be preached in the first century. It spanned more than 20 centuries since then. It's gone global. And we're still looking for Christ to return. One of the best things I think about the church um, is that being in the church is that we know what's really going on when we look at history. It's not some deep, dark, hidden conspiracy. It's not some nefarious plot that's... Uh, that we need to, or some mystery that we need to look for the clues for to try to figure out. It can all be boiled down pretty simply. Yes, are there secret, you know, plots going on? Of course there are. There always have been. But at the end of the day, we know that it boils down to the same thing. Eusebius was quoting from Psalm 2 just a minute ago. Psalm 2 is the psalm that tells us that the nations of the world rage against God. They uh, are all in opposition to God and to, to Christ. And that's the story of human history. More or less. You just have a history of humans being from Adam onward, being in rebellion against God. As believers in Christ, though, we know that the real king has come. We've been delivered from a life of hopelessness and futility. And yet, even so, I think as Christians, we, we probably have some warnings that we need to keep. So in Luke 20, Luke 21, Jesus predicting future events says this. Uh, verses 8 and 9. He says, Take heed that you not be deceived. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he. The time has drawn near. Therefore do not go after them. But when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified, for these things must come to pass first. But the end will not come immediately. Ever since uh, Christ came, all, all down through the centuries, there have been false Christs and false causes and false movements. And Christ tells us to beware of those. Um, even as Christians, we can be caught up in things that are ultimately futile, that are ultimately meaningless, and it's going to waste our time. It's going to be spiritually detrimental to us. Um, we can be led astray. Um, how do we know these movements, though, when we hear them? Um, how do we recognize something that's false? One of the first ways... Look down at verse 27. Jesus tells us one of the first ways that we can recognize them. He says, then they will... I'm sorry. Back up. Yeah. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. That's correct. Verse 27. Um, in a parallel passage in Matthew, uh, Jesus warns us that if people come and say, oh, I'm Christ, we should not uh, trust them. Uh, we shouldn't believe them. And the reason is quite simply that because when Christ actually comes, the whole world's going to see him. He's going to come in glory. The second time, he's not coming quietly. He's coming in glory, he's coming in power, and the whole world will witness it all at once. Um, there have been any number, there have been countless numbers. Just in the last century, there are countless movements, countless cults, with people who claim some way or another to be Christ, to, to be on the side. Um, in America, all over the world, we have these cults. One way that we can tell a false movement is anyone who claims to be Christ, other than Christ when he comes in power and glory. That's the first way. Uh, however, I think that um, 
for us as a group, especially as conservative Christians, we're probably less likely to fall into that trap. Uh, where someone comes along and says, hey, I know that Christ has returned. He's in such and such a place, and you need to you know, do something or think something or get ready in some way. Um, I think most of us, especially if we have a good foundation in Scripture, we're probably less likely to fall into that error. But there is a second way that we can um, be led astray. I think that, is, that way is when we see movements and causes that are either Christian or pro-Christian, so you might not have somebody who, who overtly comes out and says, I'm Christ. But nonetheless, you have people who are appealing to the Christian church and saying, hey, you know, I'm for you. I'm, you know, get on my bandwagon. Uh, Eusebius, back to Eusebius, I think that as we learn about him, he is, uh, I, gr I grow in my respect for him. He has a lot of really good insights. And yet, even so, he, you can kind of tell just reading him now so many years later, you can kind of tell that he was also subject to some of the blind spots of his own culture and time. And he got onto some bandwagons in his time, which were also probably ultimately futile. And I don't think that we're any exception to that now. We have our own blind spots in our own day. I think the second way um, that we can know false leaders and movements is probably suggested by verse uh, 28. Again, back to Luke 21, 28. Jesus says, Now when these things begin to happen, Look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. Luke 21 is prophecies. The context is prophecies about end times events. And Jesus, after telling a lot of, uh, warning us about a lot of the signs that precede his return, he says in verse 28, he's basically saying, you know, be cheerful. When you see these things, know that my return is very, very near. Um, but what we should also take away from that is that our redemption is not complete until he actually returns. So any movement or any cause that is promising the final victories of the king of the kingdom before the king has come back, we should know that that's a false cause. And what are some of those final victories? Um, in, in reality, if we think about some of the victories that we have in the kingdom, there are victories that we enjoy now. Uh, one of those victories, of course, is um, uh, knowing and having fellowship with God and with other believers. Uh, we enjoy sanctification, the fruits of, of the Spirit in our life. Um, we have a participation now in God's uh, work of calling others from other nations into his kingdom. So there are a lot of victories in the kingdom that we enjoy right now. But there are some victories, some final victories that are reserved for the return of the king. There are victories that only occur after Jesus comes back. Some of those victories include the peace and the prosperity of the kingdom. The peace, the final peace and the prosperity of the kingdom is only promised when Jesus sets the kingdom up finally. Uh, the visible defeat of the church's enemies. The church has always had enemies throughout its history. People who want to destroy it, people who want to hurt it, um, people who want to subjugate it, um, suppress its freedom. The defeat of those enemies only finally comes when Christ comes back. Anyone who promises you that it will happen earlier is leading you down the wrong path. The end of wars and suffering and evil. It's good that the church should do good things and uh, try to alleviate suffering. But the end of that suffering and the end of wars only comes when Jesus comes back. These are the kinds of Christian causes, quote-unquote Christian causes, that I think we are probably most people like us, well, you know, well established in the Word of God are probably most likely most susceptible to 
are falling into a deep understanding. Any questions? Yeah, I, I just I just probably have one comment. As you were talking, you made an excellent point in terms of the utility of um, multiple movements that could be a uh, detrimental to our spiritual growth. And as you talked about that, I could see how a lot of Christians could fall for like political leaders telling you that they're on your side, for your values and things of that nature, and then you would fall into following them, even consider them as some type of a messiah for our nation or whatever. So it's, I've, I've seen kind of like this way similar to what you said. Yeah, it's a great comment. Anyone else? <laughs> I think the uh, uh, antidote or, or cure for this type of thinking is really in setting our eyes on the return of the king. Once we, if we, if we set our minds and our hopes and completely on Christ's return, then we're less likely to fall into these. And this is just going to lead me to some final thoughts as we're running out of time here. Um, some final thoughts because they're related to our class today and also some questions that people have been asking. John just last week asked a question about amillennial versus premillennial. Alex went there again today. So one of the legacies of Jerusalem, of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, the fall of Jerusalem, is it did have a profound effect on the church's thinking. And um, to answer, I think John's question boiled down to back then, were they premillennial, amillennial, or what? Right? Um, premillennial, just for information, means that you believe Sometime in the future, Christ comes back and sets up a literal thousand-year reign in Jerusalem. Uh, Amillennial probably takes that more allegorically or symbolically, right? Um, and the answer is uh, probably they were both. Uh, the church actually began to diverge uh, a little bit. The earliest writings that I could find seem to uh, be more premillennial, um, but very early on, I think we see evidence of amillennial. So here's a, a quote from, just a little excerpt from a guy named Justin Martyr, who will also eventually study, talking about this very thing. It's a book he wrote where he's uh, ostensibly having a conversation with a Jew named Trypho. This is, this is uh, second century. It's very, very early. And in this conversation, Trypho, who's not a believer, asked Justin, so tell me, do you really admit that this place, Jerusalem, shall be rebuilt? And do you expect that your people, your people to be gathered together and made joyful with Christ and the patriarchs and the prophets, with the men of our nation, and other proselytes who joined them before your Christ came? Or have you given way at Midas and have the appearance of worsting us in conversation and controversies? Justin replies to Trico and says, I admitted to you formally that I and many others are of this opinion and believe that such will take place. So there you have it. Um, this is one of the evidence of how the church handled the fall of Jerusalem. Very early on, they're believing Jerusalem as a as a spiritual site will be rebuilt. Jerusalem was rebuilt, but as a spiritual location, it will be rebuilt when Christ returns. Justin also adds this as well. He says, um, "If I can find it real quick here." But on the other hand, I signify to you that many who belong to the pure and pious faith and our true Christians think otherwise. 
So even Justin, though clearly pre-millennials, what we call them today, he's acknowledging the fact that they Christians even in his own time now probably not seem to be the same way. Maybe more amillennial, we use that term today. Mm -hmm. um, so they, they see the Jerusalem fall and they think, okay, it, it has to be spiritual now because the, yes. the people who take the amillennial view, there's no way this is going to be rebuilt. So, so Christ must be talking about a spiritual but the bottom line is, and again, notice what he said. He gives him a lot of respect, though he disagrees with those other Christians. He says, these are pious believers of the pure faith. Um, that's really, you know, to his credit that he does that. But the bottom line is, as Christians, we're still looking to the same thing. Whether you believe in a thousand years of literal reign in Jerusalem or not, you are still looking to the return of Christ. And that's what gives us our reverence.